Amen, amen. Let's show our appreciation to our children's ministry workers. Amen. And uh, we appreciate you as well, worship team. I know that was a bit of a patchwork team as we've had a number of folks uh, get sick this past week, as I know has happened in your families as well. Good to see you here. We had a little bit of sickness go through our uh, home. I think we're starting now to make our way up. We're a little wobbly, but we're walking in the way of life, so that's good. If I, if I do cough explosively into the mic, don't be alarmed by that. You haven't done anything wrong. The Lord will just providentially arrange that to keep you alert. Um, well, it is good to be here. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 1 to 18. That's on page 749 in the church Bibles. Uh, As has already been mentioned, this is the third Sunday in Advent. The word Advent, as I'm sure you know by now, means coming. And uh, we typically use the word Advent in regular language outside the church to refer to uh, the dawning of something important or the coming of something important. So we might talk of the the advent of the internet or, or the advent of democracy, when something significant comes. And, of course, in the church, when we use that word, we're talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. So for our Advent series this year, we've been asking and answering the question, what child is this? Who is the Christ who has come and is coming? And this week, we're looking at a prophecy about the coming of the Son of Man. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you know that's actually one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. Uh, And yet, it's probably the title of Jesus that feels most foreign to us, isn't it? I mean, if I say Jesus is the son of David, there's all kinds of Sunday school stories that you can immediately marshal to help you understand what that probably means. If I say that Jesus is the son of God, well, again, uh, I, I bet you you kind of have an intuitive sense of what that means. If I say that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, well, again, you've got enough familiarity with Moses, I'm sure, to have a sense of what that means. But what about this title, the Son of Man? Now, we know we are right in ascribing this title to Jesus because Jesus actually steps into this title and into this prophetic line of anticipation at the climax of his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. When the high priest puts Jesus under oath and asks him, are you the Christ the son of the blessed, Jesus says in response, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus gives his identity when he's under oath. He gives his identity through the lens of this prophecy in Daniel 7. Under oath, he says, I am the Christ, I am the Son of the Blessed One, I am the Son of God, and I am the Son of Man. To really understand who I am and why I've come, you have to look at my life, my ministry, through the lens of Daniel's prophecy, which is exactly what we're going to do this morning. Now, before we get into the words of the prophecy itself in Daniel 7, let me provide a bit of background. This is, uh, it's, it's not as well-worn a path. Sometimes at Advent, when we're talking about this in the preaching worship, part of the challenge uh, for a pastor at Advent is there are, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, seven or eight uh, 
Adventi passages in your Bible. Um, classic passages that kind of uh, point forward to Jesus, that help you land at Christmas time with a little bit of understanding about what you're supposed to be all excited about. So seven or eight of those. Um, but I would say four or five of them get preached on every year. Uh, and so, you know, we all know about Bethlehem, right? We know the passage from Micah, and there's a couple passages in Isaiah that, that we love. This one, though, uh, is probably the one that's least familiar to us. Part of that is that uh, Daniel's not an, the easiest book in the Bible to explain to people. They've got a couple landmines in there. And so you, you kind of feel like you have to walk through these landmines in order to, to get to the good stuff. Uh, and you realize there's some potential for distraction. At any point, somebody could be off on a trail trying to figure out if Henry Kissinger is the Antichrist. And you're like, no, bring it back. Bring it back. Uh, this passage is about Jesus. And, uh, and so we, we don't tend to have as, as good a handle on this. Let me give you a bit of background. First of all, Daniel the man who, who is involved in these visions, some of the visions he's interpreting, some of the visions he's having. Daniel was one of the young Jewish aristocrats uh, who were taken as captive in the first wave of deportations to Babylon. Sometimes we think there was only one, you know, in our minds, it's all just one deportation, but it actually happens in, in multiple waves. And Daniel was part of the first wave in 605 BC. So Daniel had actually been in Babylon for 19 years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the big wave of deportations in 586, which was a good thing. It was part of God's providence because by that time, Daniel had risen to a position of prominence in the government, in large part due to his ability to interpret dreams. Now, if you're a Bible reader, uh, then you will no doubt understand and, and have known before this morning that the dream that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7 is actually very similar to the dream that Daniel interprets in Daniel chapter 2. That's the dream that got Daniel promoted in the first place. The dream in Daniel 2 was had by King Nebuchadnezzar. When Daniel was a young man, obscure, nobody knew his name, the king had a dream, and he knew that it was important, but when he woke up, he couldn't remember the details. Have you ever had a dream like that, where you wake up and you're like, I think God just told me something. However, I can remember none of it. And, and you, you try to think, and you rub your head, and, you, and you're like, what just happened? And so you go back to sleep hoping you have the dream again. Have you ever had that? Anyway, so King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream like that. He knows it's important, but he can't remember it. So he says to all of his wise men, somebody needs to tell me the dream that I had and what it means. And of course, everyone's panicking because nobody can do that. But Daniel steps forward, and he says, I can do that, not because I'm special, but because I serve a God who holds all mysteries. And so he comes and he explains the dream. The substance of the dream that the king had is that there were going to be four great empires that would arise and dominate the course of human history. Babylon is the first. So Daniel has, or the king has that dream in Babylon. He's the first. We remember that because we're told he's the head of gold. So these empires are described in terms of a great statue with medals of descending quality. Scholars generally identify the four empires as Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And as I mentioned, in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream, they're all represented by a statue, a head of gold that goes all the way down to legs of iron with feet made of iron mixed with clay. Wonderful metaphors. 
The climax of that vision is recorded in Daniel 2, 34 to 35. Daniel says this to the king, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the substance of the first vision is that there will be four great empires and then a stone from heaven cut by no human hand will strike the statue in its feet in its feet of iron and clay so we take that to mean in the time of the latter days of the roman empire will strike the statue undermining its stability and ultimately destroying it and replacing it with a kingdom that will never end. So that's the substance of the first vision. Now, Daniel's vision here in chapter 7 builds on that original foundation. It provides additional clarity, content, and hope. So we'll read the vision, we'll discuss what it's saying, and then we'll use that to further our understanding and appreciation of the one who has come and is coming again. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I consider the horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out before him. 
a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment. And the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me, And made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this vision, which, as we've noted, is a companion to Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2, we see a picture of human history, a picture of ultimate reality, and a promise of everlasting dominion. So let's begin with the picture of human history. We see that in verses 1 to 8. It says that Daniel saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the waters of the sea. Now, in apocalyptic literature, the waters of the sea typically represent the chaos and tumult of the peoples. So the sea is human history. And the point is that God is stirring the pot. And as he stirs the pot, empires rise and fall. Which, of course, raises the question, are these empires from God or are they from Satan? And the answer, actually, is both. In Revelation 13, we have the New Testament version of this vision. I've said before, you should almost not be allowed to read the book of Revelation until you've read the Old Testament five or six times. Because uh, some scholars estimate that there are more than 400 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And we just go right to the book of Revelation. We have no idea what any of these things mean. But the Old Testament is like a painting that is painted with colors lifted from Old Testament canvases. And they bring their stories and their context with them. Which is why Revelation, for people who have not read the Old Testament, is basically just a playground for foolishness. But you you do your homework and and you read these Old Testament visions. Well, in, in Revelation, there is a recast. You know how they make like every year they make a new version of of Spider-Man? I, almost, I wonder if all of Hollywood is on strike and we've just not been told. 
Because all they do is every year they make a new version of Spider-Man or Superman or the Incredible Hulk or whatever, and they're never as good as the ones we grew up with in the 80s, so there you go. (laughs) But anyway, uh, in Revelation 13, there is a recasting of this vision. And again, you have the winds of heaven stirring up the waters of the sea. Once again, a beast arises out of the sea that looks like a weird bunch of animals. Revelation 13, 5 to 7 says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. All right, so a, a beast here has authority for a certain limited amount of time to harass and harry the saints of God, even to conquer them. So this is clearly a manifestation of Satan's power. Satan is animating human powers, governments, and empires to oppress and oppose God's people. Okay. And yet, once again, it is God who is stirring the pot. It is the winds of heaven that stir up the sea. So the point is that God is rigging the game. The devil is trying to run things, but actually God is in charge. The devil thinks he's winning, but actually God's purposes are being advanced. That's the message. So back to Daniel 7. We've got four empires, a flying lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a fourth beast that is terrible, dreadful, with iron teeth. This beast seems to have two incarnations because out of it comes ten horns, ten powers, ten kingdoms, and among them, another horn who displaces three of the others and speaks blasphemous and arrogant things. And of course, here's one of our landmines. It's, we, we like to get distracted here, and we like to wonder, who is this little horn who arises out of a kingdom that appears to be descendant from the Roman Empire? Who, who is this horn who speaks blasphemous things? Is it President Obama? Is it, is it President Trump? Oh, we like to have fun with that, don't we? And we go back and forth. It's a wonderful game to play. But actually, to play the game is to miss the point that is being made in the arrangement. Because the way the story is laid out is intending to communicate that what is happening down here at the level of human history is actually not what ultimately matters. At the end of verse eight, there's a sudden scene shift. The perspective of the vision moves up from the ground level of human history to the higher perspective of ultimate reality. That's what really matters. Because decisions up there change the course of history down here. So actually, we're being told to keep our eye on the upper story. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, in essence, we have gone up the chain of being. Evil human kingdoms were described as horrifying hybrid animals. The divine realm is imaged as human beings. The association is perfectly appropriate in a broader broader biblical view because after all, Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created men and women in his own image. So you get the sense that human kingdoms are fallen. They're 
beastly. They're under the power and dominion of the beast, but a truly human kingdom. See, the funny thing is we're so used to using the adjective human in a bad sense. We miss it when in the Bible it is used as a good sense because human beings were originally created as a benevolent power. So in the next phase of the vision, we're moving up a level. Now we begin to see a picture of ultimate reality. In verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So we've got thrones changing hands down here. We've got kingdoms rising and falling down here. We've got arrogant human agents wedging their way forward so as to speak arrogant and blasphemous things down here. But as I looked, Daniel says, I saw a throne being placed up there. And I saw the Ancient of Days taking his seat on the only throne that really matters. That's the message of the vision as a whole. As history is moving along down here, the really important events are happening up there. And when things happen up there, their impact is felt immediately down here. Verses 11 to 12. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion is taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So as soon as court goes into session up there, things begin to change down here. In fact, Daniel sees history beginning to speed towards its conclusion. Actions taken up there decisively undermine the power of the beast down here. The kingdoms of the earth continue to exist for a while, but they are no longer important players in the drama. Something else, someone else is now seated on the throne and he is the only character from this point on that truly matters. Daniel sees this enthronement in verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Do you see the clouds of heaven? You remember Jesus steps into this imagery. He owns this imagery in his trial. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in the uber story, the controlling story, Daniel sees one like a son of man, a human being, but obviously more than a human being. Daniel sees this person standing before the ancient of days, before God, and being given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. That is the, that's the story, the decision that's made up in the uber story that immediately changes the course of human history down here. So by putting these visions together, the one Daniel interpreted in chapter 2 and the one that he himself has here in chapter 7, we learn that the stone sent from heaven is actually a son, one like a son of man. His coming decisively undermines the power of the beast 
and establishes a kingdom that will grow and fill the earth. And of course, when you know that, you can't not see that in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus referred to himself as the one who binds the strong man. In Matthew 12, 29, he said, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, I've come to steal a kingdom. So the first thing we've got to do is knock the strong man unconscious and tie him to a chair. Once we've done that, then we can go ahead and plunder the house. This is part of how the apostles spoke about the ministry of Jesus. Paul said, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul says, this is how God changed the course of human history. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Jesus is the intervention that changes the course of human history, right? Human history is like a river, and it it had been moving along in its course, and you could look at how it's gone, and you could predict how it was going, but then all of a sudden, a rock like a mountain fell from heaven on that river and forever changed its course and trajectory. That's who Jesus is. He bruises the head of the strong man. What does that sound like to you, that language? We've been, I mentioned, you know, there's seven or eight Advent passages that are pretty commonly preached on, uh, you know, passages that help us anticipate Jesus. And in the preaching workshop, you know, we, we talked about how it, you get bonus points in your Advent sermon if you mention the first of those promises. The, the very first promise in the Bible about Jesus, of course, is found in Genesis 3.15. You know it. Right after the fall, God actually speaks to the devil. Did you know that the first promise about Jesus in the Bible is made to the devil? Isn't that interesting? See, because the devil thinks he's won. Because, re- remember, the way that the universe was made, God at the top, of course, God outside and overall, of course, But then human beings were supposed to be under God and over everything else. Well, let me ask you a question. Is the devil something in the everything else? So you understand that in the original arrangement of the universe, human beings were supposed to be over God and over everything else, including spiritual entities like Satan. But Satan wanted to flip the game. Satan wanted to be over everything else without reference to God in this universe. That's why in the Bible they refer to Satan as the prince in power, the heir. He is the highest entity in the universe in that sense. That's why Satan could offer those things to Jesus in his earthly life. Because human beings fell down a rung in the ladder during the fall, and Satan stepped into that vacuum. Right? And so what's the first promise that God makes about Jesus? He says in Genesis 3.15, do you remember the actual words? We quote that passage so much, I wonder sometimes if we actually look at the words that it says. Genesis 3.15 says, just listen to me, it's not on the screen. Genesis 3.15 says, he, so that's it's Jesus, because God's speaking of the devil, he 
shall bruise your head and you shall what? You remember? Can you finish it? Bruise his heel. Bruise, bruise, bruise. I think you think that says he shall crush your head and kill you, squash you like a bug. And you shall, you know, bite his heel. That's not what it says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's being promised there? What's being promised is that someone will come, born to a woman, you know, like a son of man, not, not another angel. God's not going to create a super angel to come and, and beat up Satan. What he's actually going to do is he's going to come and injure our enemy so that we can become again the people we were created and intended to be. And that's why everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and known, the power of the devil is diminished. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the disciples and they came back and and they told about all the good things that had happened and all the people that were getting saved and all the good things, and Jesus said what? I saw Satan fall like lightning. Everywhere the gospel is preached, the devil's power is diminished, and human beings and human societies immediately begin to flourish. Now, you know this is true, whether you've put it together theologically or not. Let me ask you a question. I've asked my kids this question, by the way, because it's a great way to get your kids thinking. I've asked them the question, and now I'm asking you. Just for a moment now, try and think if there are five countries in the world. Let's, let's imagine that you got kicked out of Canada, and you had to submit a list of five countries that you and your family would be willing to go to. Just for, imagine, for a second right now, try to think if there are five countries you would agree to, to, to go to with your family that have never been thoroughly Christianized, that have never been at any point under the sound of the gospel or shaped by the gospel. Just see if you can do that right now. There's no way you would do that. For fun, just come up with your list. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to be deported from Canada tomorrow. You have to submit a, a list of five countries you'd be willing to go to. Just, I'm guessing, first country on your list is going to be the States, right? Well, we'll go to the States. You know, they're weird there and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, God love them. They're great neighbors, right? Sorry, Pastor Steve. You're awesome. <laughs> no, but I'm guessing that's the, first, that's the first country on your list, right? And then after that, what do you got? Well, I don't know, maybe, maybe Britain. And then what? Maybe Germany. And then what? Maybe, maybe Norway, maybe Switzerland, maybe, keep going. What, are, what do all those countries have in common? At one point, all of those countries were thoroughly shaped and impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now for fun, see if you can come up a, a, a list of five countries you absolutely would not go to under any circumstance, and what do they all have in common? Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying anything about biology here. What I'm talking about is the impact that Christ has on a culture. Wherever the gospel is known and preached, people change. The power of the devil diminishes, and the capacity of human beings increases, and the societies they found flourish. By the way, it might be a good thing to remind your local high school teacher of that fact, because so much of education today seems to be designed to undermine the foundations of civilization. Ask them 
what came before? Because that's a good predictor of what will come after. Wherever the gospel is preached, the power of the devil diminishes and human capacity, capacity rises. Jesus said that would happen. Jesus said that was the plan. He's come to bind the strong man. He's come to spread throughout all human culture like yeast through a batch of dough, he said. Remember, his movement is spreading and it's growing, just like the stone sent from heaven. Do you remember the stone crashed into the feet of the statue and it grew and became a great mountain? Well, so too the kingdom of heaven inaugurated by Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus is the great intervention. His coming is the stone that shatters the power of the enemy and establishes a kingdom that will grow and fill the earth. Praise the Lord. So we've seen a picture of human history. We've seen a picture of ultimate reality. And now in the final scene, we're given a promise of everlasting dominion. Look at verses 15 to 18. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Now the word translated there as kings can also mean reigns or rules. And so most scholars and commentators here will take this to mean that there are going to be four great kingdoms, each with their characteristic king. So we've got Babylon with its Nebuchadnezzar. We've got Medo-Persia with its Cyrus the Great. We've got Greece with its Alexander the Great. And we've got Rome with its Caesar. But none of that ultimately matters because the kingdom of heaven with its Christ is coming, and his reign and his rule will be forever and ever and ever. So in a sense, this vision actually builds on the prophecy that was unpacked for us last Sunday by Pastor Steve. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about how Isaiah had a vision. In this vision, which came after a succession of kings that took the people of God down, 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 down into death and ruin, The prophet has a vision about a king that is coming who will lift the people up, up, up into glory and dominion. Well, here in this vision, Isaiah's national story is transposed into a cosmic key. The coming one will not just reverse the flow of Israelite history. He will reverse the flow of human history because he is not just the seed of Abraham He is the son of man. He has come for all of us. He has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and to pay for what we have done in his body on the cross. He has come to break our chains and our captivity, hamstring our enemy, and restore us into the image and likeness of God. That's the gospel. You see, we were made to rule. We were made to represent 
We were made to resemble. In January, we're going to start this new series that we're doing called Biblical Anthropology. Many theologians are saying right now that the theological battles of the future are not going to be fought over the Trinity. They're not going to be fought over the, you know, the definition of the atonement. They're going to be fought over what we understand about human beings. Things like gender, things like sexuality, things like embodiment. You know, one of the greatest threats right now that is facing young people is this notion that they can live lives entirely online. There are, there are AI-generated girlfriends now that you can download. True story. Where, where you can interact with these people, they'll ask you questions. How was your day, sweetheart? It's like Blade Runner all over again. Which makes sense to nobody under 50. But you're, you're tracking with me. But we need, we need to have a conversation about what it means to be a human being. So, Pastor Rob didn't, he's been on holidays this week having a baby week, which is great. He didn't know what we're talking about this, uh, this morning. But he, he talked about the importance of gathering together, the fire that is generated when people gather in a room. That's what it means to be a human being. Something critical about our humanity will be lost if we give in to this movement towards virtual reality. So we're going to be talking about that. You know where we're going to start? We're going to start with this whole question of what does it mean to be image and likeness of God? Have you thought about that? Image and, if, if, you, if you open up, crack open a systematic theology book and, you know, go to the index and look for image of God, and so you just look, hey, define for me image and likeness of God. And we'll say, well, it means a variety of things. You know, we're not sure if it means all the way to this or if it means, do we, do human beings look like God? Uh, we don't know. Uh, but they'll say, here's, here's what we know for sure it means to be image and likeness of God. It means to resemble God in some critical way. You resemble God. I'm not talking about your hair color or, or you know, the, how many fingers and toes you have. In your moral and spiritual essence, you resemble God in a way no other creature on planet Earth does. It means to resemble God. It means to represent God. And it means to reign beneath God as vice regent over all things. That's what it means. We were made for that. We were made to rule. We were made to resemble. We were made to represent. And because of Jesus, because of his divine intervention, we can and we will. Look at how the story ends. Look at verse 18, Daniel 7, 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. That's actually not the ending we expect, is it? We expect that to say, and the Son of Man will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. But that's not what it says. You see, Jesus did not come to win back something he had lost because he had lost nothing. You understand, the second person of the Trinity was fine, is fine, and will always be fine. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came back to win what we lost. We suffered a tremendous defeat. We, we fell 
We lost. We became enslaved. We became less. And Jesus entered into human history to change that. He came to make us men and women again. He came to end our captivity. He came to give us victory over the enemy. He came to make it a fair fight. More than that, he came to rig the game in our favor. Do you see that? Jesus came, and like a stone sent from heaven, he fell on the devil's head. He knocked him cold. He tied him up. He bound the strong man. Now his, his body still has some life in it. But the devil will never be the same. He's done. It's over for him. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. That's what Jesus accomplished for us in his coming. He came to give us back what the enemy had taken from us. And that's how every good redemption story ends. You learned this in Sunday school. When, when, when God bound the strong man in Egypt and he set his people free, he didn't send them out of Egypt empty-handed, did he? Do you remember? He told them, each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Do you see that? God always gives you back what the enemy has taken from you. Redemption always involves restoration and repayment. Now listen, as I said off the top, the main reason we're looking at these various passages is to better understand and appreciate the Christ of Christmas. That's the whole point of Advent. To focus our attention on the one who has come and is coming. So that's the main point. But at the same time, seeing that point has certain implications that we should be careful to take notice of. And you see these implications being worked out all throughout the New Testament. This is why, for example, the Apostle Paul can say, you know, our present suffering, I don't even, I don't even want to talk about it, right? Like Paul was one of those guys you ask him, and you know something's wrong with him because he's all bandy-legged and weird. And he can barely, you know, he can, he's walking like this and he can barely see. And you're like, hey, Paul, how you doing? And he's like, I don't even want to talk about it. You know why? Because my suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that awaits me. I'm going to reign with Jesus forever. So, yeah, wonky hip, wonky back, zip it, I don't care. This is why the Apostle Paul will say to people, why not rather be wronged? What is wrong with you people? Somebody, somebody stiffed you on a bill, and you're going to blow your Christian testimony and, and slander them and slaughter them on Facebook. Why? Because you need that 500 bucks? Do you not understand that the saints will rule the world? Do you not understand that, he says. When human history finally comes to an end, there will be a final reckoning and it will be conducted entirely in your favor. So chill out. That's what Paul says. That's his paraphrase, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. 100%. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded, he says, you, you don't need closure right now. You will judge the world. 
So chill out, right? Take a long view here. In the coming of Jesus, the stone sent from heaven, the Son of Man, in his coming, human history has been set upon its final trajectory. There may be some twists and turns. There there will be some ups and downs. But the destination has been established. He has been given a kingdom by the ancient of days. And it is his good pleasure to share that kingdom with his disciples. So that's the plan, brothers and sisters. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The devil may howl and rage, but his power has been decisively broken. He is a spent force. Christ is the only power that matters in this universe now. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, what child is this? (laughs) The child who changes the game. The child who wins a kingdom and who shares it with all those who put their trust in him. The child who will be ruler and Lord over all. That is the Christ who's coming we celebrate at Christmas. That's our Jesus. And that's our hope this Advent season. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thine is the power, the kingdom, and the glory. Lord, before you, all of this universe is like a sea of glass. Nothing is out of control. Lord, you stir the pot. You raise up one and cast down another. Lord, you shake the table, dividing all people into two camps, the camp of the lamb and the camp of the beast. Lord, whatever shakes and stirs there are in the future, may they be such as to drive us fully, entirely, and gladly into the arms of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.